Uh, we're going through a study in Luke, and we've been talking quite a bit uh, in our study about money. And one of you mentioned to me today that it appears as if Brian has manipulated the schedule to turn me into the bad cop, and every time we have to talk about money, I'm up here. But let me just say, knowing Brian as I do, I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels that way. (laughs) Not really, not really. Uh, It is interesting, as we're going to see again this morning, that the words of Luke and the words of Jesus and the way that Luke has crafted his gospel are going to bring us circling back again and again to some very uncomfortable themes. So if you're feeling, uh, as you've been sitting here week after week, that you're, you're kind of like strapped to a tree and the chainsaw is just inching closer to your toes, you're not alone. You're not the only one. We're all feeling a bit uncomfortable. If we could just leave the teachings of Jesus to the golden rule and not judging everybody, I think we'd all leave a lot happier, right? But there's some offensive things being said. There's some difficult things being said. And if we will hear them, they are the most freeing words in the world. I'm going to read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading from Luke chapter 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you be present in this place to set us free from our fears, to set us free from our guilt, from our shame, and from our possessions that so easily entangle us into turning away from you. I ask that as we hear your word being preached this morning, that we would hear the voice of our Savior, not condemning us, not not telling us that we have to do something impossible, but that he has done the impossible. He is welcoming us into his home. Would we receive that welcome this morning by the power of the Spirit? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The story of Chris Gardner is a heartwarming, truly American tale. 
And it's a true story of, of Chris going from living on the streets of San Francisco to being a multimillionaire, and it was captured in the movie The Pursuit of Happiness. And it's a story that we love to hear. It's an age-old American tale of someone who wasn't afraid to gamble, someone who wasn't afraid to work hard and hustle and make a better life for himself and for his family. And we, we tend to like stories like this about the underdog, the downtrodden, weak people who then, through really hard work and perseverance, make this big change and achieve a better life. These are American folk tales. If you remember from your grade school or high school history classes, there's a story of a young poor boy named Abe who, despite all of the educational limitations that his culture surrounded him with, broke out of Illinois and became perhaps one of the most impactful presidents our nation has ever seen. I bring up these stories not as a way to then later criticize the achievements of Chris Gardner or even in an attempt to undercut the hard work and diligence that it takes to make a better life for yourself. But I bring them up simply as an example to point out to us that we tell stories over and over in our culture as a way to get ideas across, truths that we think are very important. So we'll leave these stories alone for now simply by saying our stories, our songs, our hymns and our ideas tell what we believe to be the truth, what we believe to be important about life. And the rich young ruler has these same sorts of stories and has these ideas about life that are not too far off from our own. Now, Luke has arranged his text for us in a way that, that he makes the central point quite literally the central point. So I was going to say if we had PowerPoint, I could have done this, but I hate PowerPoint, so I wouldn't have done it. But if you look at your text, you'll notice there are bookended ideas all the way along. It begins with the idea of eternal life. It ends with the idea of eternal life. After that, there's a discussion about family loyalty and following the law. On the other side, it's a discussion about family loyalty and following Jesus. And as we keep narrowing down notch by notch, we get to the very center. And in the very center, past all these loyalties, past discussions about eternal life, past discussions about difficult obedience, we are smack dab in the middle of a two-sentence parable about camels and the eye of a needle. As we attempt to understand what Luke is trying to communicate to us here, we're going we're gonna to follow sort of a similar pattern because he's, he's creating this funnel for us. And we're going to sort of circle around in this funnel and try to pull together the various strands that he's giving to us and tie them into a knot at the center. So we'll look at our text this morning by looking at a confident question that receives a crushing reply, followed by an incredulous question that reveals the impossibility of grace. Now, as we pull all of these themes together, we still have to do the work of putting together all the broader themes of Luke as well. So we've got a lot to do this morning because Luke has been braiding this knot together for us, where if we think that we have figured out the kingdom of God, he has some very pernicious ideas about what the kingdom of God really is, about who is in and who is out and how we form our identity. We're going to begin with a confident question, and we'll begin at the beginning. Let's start there. The rich ruler enters on stage left and asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Does that sound familiar? If you've been with us for a number of weeks, you might remember that this is the exact question that the lawyer asked Jesus, which resulted in that infuriating tale of the Good Samaritan. 
Apparently, the rich young ruler wasn't around to hear how that story ended. Now, when we, when we saw in, in Jesus' interaction with the lawyer in Luke 10, uh, I said that this is one of those questions that was being asked in the culture regularly, and I think Luke is, is bringing it back around to us again to show us the sort of culture that Jesus inhabited. This was a standard question for theological circles. And in many ways, it was a question designed to get at the fidelity of the teacher, to make sure that the teacher was orthodox. And, but at the same time, it also echoes very important ideas about Jewish life, about what was important, what we were living for. You might remember that I said last time that this question does not mean, how do I get to heaven when I die? Rather, in, in, a, in a first century Jewish understanding, the question is more like, the age to come, the age to come, how do we get it? How does it take place? And if you were with us when we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, you'll, you'll remember that this reveals the Jewish understanding of God's reign in time. God's reign in time takes place in two ages. The present age, the age in which God's people were still living in political exile, still living as prisoners in their own land under the Romans. And then there's an age to come, an age which would be ushered in by the great and terrible day of the Lord, a day of judgment and destruction for all of the enemies of God's people and a day of vindication and jubilation for the people of Israel. And one of the very popular religious notions at the time was that if only God's people would be law keepers, if only they could keep the law in such a way that God would know that they were serious, the new age would come sweeping in and God would once again dwell with his people in the land that he had given them. And both times Jesus has asked this question, he brings his questioners right back to the law, right back to the very place they were expecting to be led. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that he's like a judo master. As soon as these guys shift their weight and in this self-affirmation assume that they have been right all along, they find themselves lying on the ground face up wondering what just happened. Now this time, Rather than enter into a deeper discussion about kind of the underlying themes of the entire law, like Jesus did with the lawyer, this time he simply says to this rich young ruler, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie and honor your parents. And we're going to come back to that list of commands in a moment, because for those of you that, I'm sure all of you have memorized the Ten Commandments, right, in order, those of you that, that maybe remember those in order, you'll realize that Jesus is picking and choosing, and he's taking them out of order, and, and he's doing that to unmask some very deeply held cultural assumptions that we'll look at in, the, in a, a minute here. But as I said uh, at the very beginning, that this, this story is typically referred to as the rich young ruler. And yet there is nowhere in Scripture that he's ever actually described as young. I, I think the reason that we call him young is because he sort of acts like a college freshman, doesn't he? I mean, not, not, like, not like I was when I was a college freshman. I've never been like this. But he, he kind of comes up, right, and he kisses up to the teacher, good teacher, and then he asks these really brilliant, deep questions. And then as soon as he gets an answer, he's just like, oh, yeah, I know, I know. That's what I was going to say. I've done that. I've done all of that. Everything that you say, I totally get. And Mark Twain, I think, nailed it. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. By the time I got to 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned in just seven years. <laughs> the self-assuredness of youth. Like I said, couldn't describe me, could it? So what does Jesus do? He answers this very self-assured young man with a crushing 
crushing reply. Sell everything you have and come follow me. And this answer crushes the rich ruler, not so much because having more money intrinsically makes it more difficult to give it away, though that may be true, but because Jesus has now ripped back the curtain on this young man's law-keeping. Despite all of the things that he says he has done obediently, despite all the ways that he has acted in purity towards his neighbors, Jesus has just revealed that this man has failed miserably at the first and primary commandment. You shall have no other gods. And Jesus is saying, your money has become your God. And what we should have echoing in our heads is the conversation that Jesus had with the lawyer about this very same question, that the law is hung upon loving the Lord your God with all your soul and mind and heart and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And when we tie that idea together with all the things that we've been hearing from Luke and Jesus about money, what we see is that this conversation is a head-on collision between money and discipleship. Now, a few weeks ago when we were talking about money pretty in-depth, you might remember that I said that money is important in Jesus' teaching because in many ways it serves as a stand-in. It serves as a big, lit-up, eat-here-now arrow pointing towards our self-centeredness. But having said that, we cannot and we should not avoid the reality that according to Jesus, money can be a very destructive seductress. And especially in our culture, culture of unprecedented wealth, we have got to wake up and realize that our money is controlling us in ways that we don't even know. We should not rush past the critique and see that Jesus' statements about money serve as a metonymy. They do. They do serve as to, to point us to something bigger than just money, but it's not less than money. Money is extremely deceptive. It gives us the illusion of control and power and stability, and odds are there's about a 90% chance that if you're in this room, you are being lulled to sleep, lulled into the illusion that you are in control because you have money in your bank account, gas in your car, and food in your cupboards. Jesus' critique is about more than money, but it is not about less than money. And what we have to realize is that our self-centeredness is a shape-shifting monster. It will keep working its way around, finding a new way to express itself. What Jesus is trying to point out to this rich young ruler and what he's trying to point out to us is that you can't wait expectantly for God's kingdom. You can't hope for a dawn of the new age in which God will reign supreme if you won't get off the throne yourself. We're all self-appointed kings. No matter how that expresses itself in your life, the same basic thing is at the root. You may try to show God that you've got control over him by disregarding his rules, by setting yourself up as your own moral compass, unencumbered by outside forces. Or you may try to control God by following the rules, by hoping that your achievement might outweigh your failure and that God will answer you in your time of need because you have done enough good things. What we've got to realize is that both of those types of people view God as a banker. The first type of person sees God, doesn't trust him, and they sow their money into their own mattress. The second person keeps their money in God's bank, and they hope that their deposits will outweigh their withdrawals. But the same unifying thing is at play. It's still our money, our own hard-earned money. And this is so ingrained in our type of thinking, in the way that we live our lives, that we fail to even see the ruler's question makes no sense. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
You can either earn a paycheck or you can receive an inheritance, but you cannot earn an inheritance. There is nothing you can do. And we accepted the premise of his question because it's the premise of our own lives that we accept, that somehow we will be able to earn it. I said earlier that the examples of commands that Jesus gives to this young ruler, saying, did you follow this, did you follow that, are very instructive because each of them have to do with a very deep sense of loyalty. Loyalty to family, loyalty to the broader society, and loyalty to your, to your family's property. And it's, it's difficult for us in a very mobile culture to understand how important the idea of the family really was in ancient and even modern Near Eastern cultures. But what Jesus is trying to get the rich ruler to see is that even and especially especially the deepest loyalties that we have, they must be unearthed. They must be reevaluated in the light of the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus. In reality, each of us is faced with a crushing reply when we come face to face with Jesus. You still lack one thing. Give up your self-righteousness and come and follow me. Give up your political loyalties and come follow me. Give up your nationalistic fervor and come follow me. Give up your moral record and come follow me. Give up your self-centered tribalism that refuses to let in outsiders and come follow me. Give up your self-righteous tolerance and acceptance of everything being equal and come follow me. Give up your need to make your parents happy and come follow me. Give up your need to have the best-groomed children in the world and come follow me. Give up your need, your attempt to earn God's favor over and over, perhaps most ironically, by giving away your wealth and come follow me. His reply is crushing because the closer that he circles to the core of our identity, as he begins to put pressure on the very thing that we have built our lives upon, he then turns around and asks us to give up that thing. And the more impossible it becomes to actually follow him, So we will walk away sad, just like the rich young ruler, because we have a great moral record. We have invested heavily in a nationalistic identity. We have been working since ninth grade to get to whatever career is now the center point of our lives. And some of us, to be quite honest, have been way too generous for that generosity to not count in the final scheme of things. We have worked too hard to actually give it all away and follow him. So Jesus responds, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his listeners respond with an incredulous question. Well, then who can be saved? Because just as we have stories about Chris Gardner and Abe Lincoln and George Washington, so their culture had stories about their forefathers And their stories were all pretty much the same. People that follow God get material blessing. When you look around and you see rich people like Abraham, like Isaac, like David and Solomon, you see people that have been blessed by God. Blessing from God equals material possession. That's what became the very underlying identity of this culture. So in this culture where where rich people were seen as having received special blessing from God, I mean, these had to be the people that God was pleased with. So for Jesus to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven is a complete shock. 
And the people are left wondering who exactly is safe, because if God's favorites are on the outside, then none of us are in. What will become of the rest of us? And all we're left with is the impossibility of grace. As I said, the the text that Luke has shaped for us here works like a funnel. And right at the very bottleneck of that funnel, at the very center of all of this, is a camel trying to be threaded through the eye of a needle. Now, over the years, there have been several attempts at trying to explain this word picture, and the one that has gained the most traction is to say that what Jesus is talking about is a type of gate. And so all these ancient cities had these big, huge gates, and they were so big and massive that it would take, you know, 10 men to open them. So they built these little doors. And what you had to do if you had a camel weighed down with lots of stuff, you had to take all the stuff off the camel, and then the camel could fit through the little door. Now, as interesting as that explanation might be, I think that they actually take us away from the point because they distract us from the hilarity and the insanity of an actual camel trying to push his way through the eye of a needle. I mean, do you have that mental picture? Why is no one laughing? This is hilarious. (laughs) An actual camel, an actual camel, one of the largest known animals in that culture, trying to stuff and fold and flatten its way into a piece of thread. It's ludicrous. And it's how we spend our entire lives. Our entire lives are spent vying for justification from someone, anyone, ourselves, our parents, our God, our money, our morality, but we're doing it with the assumption that we can earn it rather than inherit it. So easy, so terribly easy for church people to give lip service to grace and say, yeah, I need grace. I live by grace, man. I'm saved by grace. But then we turn around and live without it as if we're earning it for ourselves. Did you catch The quote in the beginning of your bulletin, restore to us, preacher, the comfort of merit and demerit. Prove for us that there is at least something we can do, that we are still at whatever dim recess of our nature, the masters of our relationships. Tell us, prophet, that in spite of all our nights of losing, there will be one redeeming card of our very own to fill the inside straight we have so long and so earnestly tried to draw to. But do not preach us grace. It will not do to split the pot evenly at 4 a.m. and break out the Shiva's regal. We insist on being reckoned with. Give us something, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. Friends, grace is an impossible threat because grace is not a way around the eye of the needle. It is a miracle in which we are cut down and cut loose from all of our accomplishments, all of our efforts, all of our need to do it ourselves, and we are slipped through on the thread of Jesus' death into the kingdom of God. We're told in one of the other gospels tellings of this exact story that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler as he walked away, and he loved him. And it's that love of God that works the impossible pushes aside all our mounting failure. It rushes past all our attempts at self-salvation. It runs headlong into death, chasing tirelessly after us as we scatter about pursuing our own happiness. And it requires nothing of us but a belief that if we will let it, it will dispel all of our self-loathing and all of our self-righteousness and simply let us be people that are loved. Just like Peter we'll find that if we allow ourselves to believe in this love that conquers all things, 
we will find all our old loyalties, all our old losses and wins, all our old loves falling away in the face of Jesus, and the impossible will happen in us. We will give up everything and follow him. Let's pray together. Father, your grace is overwhelming. And as often as we try to assume it, we find ourselves needing to prove ourselves to you again and again, and we find ourselves weighed down under a heavy burden. And yet Jesus has told us that his burden is light, that his yoke is easy, that if we would just come to him, we are already accepted. As we come now to your table, would we feel that acceptance? Would we feel your embrace in the deepest parts of our souls? Amen.